Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So today's episode is another in our series of Can Technology Save Us? We've done several of these already from things like nuclear fusion, nuclear fission. We've done them on solar power, one on geoengineering. And they're really fun for us because they allow us to do some cool research into things that maybe we didn't know a ton about before. But one thing that Kellen and I have noticed just from the data that we have on our end is that these episodes typically get a little less downloads than our others. And so we're curious to hear people's feedback around that. And if for some reason these are just less interesting or if they feel like maybe they already know more about this topic or whatever the reason might be. But we'd also like to hear if you enjoy these episodes to know if we should continue to do them in the future. Yeah, and I don't think our goal is ever to chase downloads or try to get a certain amount of listens. I think the goal of these episodes all along is just to present information that we feel needs to be presented. But I'm glad you bring up that invitation for people to share any thoughts or feedback, because I think it is important to know whether it's landing the way that we hope it would. For me, especially being somebody who's less aware or is just really learning all of this for the first time, you know, one of my biggest rebuttals initially when you started talking to me about collapse was that, hey, we're innovative. We're going to figure this out. And so it's been extremely helpful for me as we've done each of these Can Technology Save Us episodes to get a better grasp for what kind of impact these emerging technologies can have, as well as what issues there are and where they lack. So at least for me, these have been valuable, but I'm like you, I would love to hear more feedback. Yeah. And you made a great point about how 
the download numbers themselves aren't what's important to us, but the trends in that data help us to see maybe what people are enjoying most and what they're not. And it's just always that there's a slight dip on the weeks where we do these specific series of episodes. And so, yeah, if you've got feedback, if you've got ideas, if you've got maybe reasons why you don't enjoy them as much, if you don't, um, or reasons why you do enjoy them, if you do, we would love to receive that feedback. So you can reach out to me on Twitter at CollapsePod, or you can send us an email at BreakingDownCollapse at gmail.com. And it will be so great to hear from any of you that have feedback for us about these episodes. But the feedback we get is obviously going to be biased because we're not hearing from the people who see the title of an episode like this and choose not to listen to it. Yeah, that's totally valid. Um, obviously, we're not going to hear from the people who aren't listening to us ask for requests. But I also think that there will be people who are listening to this who might have been like on the fence about pressing play or whatever, you know. And so if you are one of those people and if if you find yourself feeling less excited about these episodes, we do want to hear from you because it could at least give us some insight into why others aren't clicking play. So all that being said, the topic of today's episode is electric vehicles. As you saw from the title, thank you for clicking play. And this has been one that I've been pretty excited about. I think it's one that people talk about a lot. It's, there's a lot of buzz around electric vehicles. And I have personally never ridden in or driven an electric vehicle. I see them around town. But Kellen, I'm curious, have you ever test driven one or, or been in one before? Yeah, actually I have. A friend of mine let me drive his electric vehicle. I'm trying to remember what it was. It wasn't a Tesla. Definitely not anything that fancy. I think it was a Nissan Leaf. Which, by the way, I hear the word leaf, and I just think of like a fragile, like little dinky car. Um, was that the case? I mean, it's definitely not the kind of vehicle that would intimidate anybody. You don't drive it around to pick up chicks and race people and things like that. <laughs> well, on the racing point, even though I know it doesn't have nearly the acceleration of a Tesla, I can't even begin to describe how fun it was to accelerate in that vehicle. My brother-in-law recently purchased a Chevy Volt. And I know with all of these electric vehicles, there is that increased acceleration. And I guess I don't know enough about electric vehicles in how they work to know why they seem to be able to accelerate so much faster than traditional gas-powered vehicles. But that experience alone of driving one has made me really want to get one someday. Yeah, I'm in the same boat as far as wanting one. I'm um, despite... You know, whether or not they can save us from collapse, which we are about to shortly explain, I think we all probably know the answer, but I do want one. You know, they are better for the environment. And not only that, they just seem like a lot of fun to drive. But the volatility of gas prices, it's attractive, you know, the thought of charging using using electricity. And there are challenges that come with that as well. So maybe with that, let's kind of dive in because there's a lot to talk about the pros and cons of electric vehicles. But, but more importantly, can they save us? from collapse. And of all these episodes that we've done in this sub-series of Can Technology Save Us, this is actually the one I'm most excited about because I feel like this is what people usually bring up when you start talking about like climate change. It's almost as if it's the prime example in people's minds of why we're going to solve the problems, there's not anything to worry about. Like just look at what we're doing with electric vehicles. Clearly, we're working our way out of this. And so because electric vehicles are kind of the poster child for science and technology and innovation and all the things that people are so convinced will save us, it seems particularly important to understand the ins and outs of it. 
So I know we've got several things to talk about here, but in order for us to understand how we got to this point and what part electric vehicles will play going forward, I think it's really important for us to understand where we came from and just briefly what is the history of electric vehicles. And I was actually really surprised when I looked into this because we look at electric vehicles as this big new frontier, this new innovation. And it turns out the concept and even to some degree, the execution of electric vehicles isn't new at all. So here in the United States, the first successful electric car made its debut around 1890. And at least globally, it's hard to pinpoint who was the first because apparently there were a handful of different breakthroughs all around the same time. But we're talking about a car that had a top speed of 14 miles per hour. And this is actually the way that the vehicle market was going for a while. But then the Model T was introduced in 1908 and Henry Ford was mass producing them. So by 1912, a gasoline car cost $650, but an electric roadster cost $1,750. So it was just way more feasible and economical for people to purchase a gasoline vehicle. And in the 1920s, there was kind of this new extensive road system and gas became extremely cheap and plentiful. Not only that, but at least outside of cities, not that many people had electricity. So anyways, by around 1935, electric vehicles were pretty much gone. But if you fast forward a few decades, in the 1960s and 70s, there were some major spikes in oil prices and there were shortages in gasoline. You know, you might think of the 1973 Arab oil embargo and all of a sudden there was more focus on lowering our dependence on oil from other countries. And so in 1976, Congress passed what was called the Electric and Hybrid Vehicle Research Development and Demonstration Act. They always wonder why these things don't stick. <laughs> it's because they give them these ridiculously long, hard to uh, remember names. Yeah, definitely doesn't roll off the tongue. But honestly, I was surprised by that, that there was an act passed by Congress back in 1976, all focused on electric and hybrid vehicles. Anyways, the electric vehicles that were produced in the 70s couldn't travel nearly as fast as gasoline vehicles. Their top speed was like 45 miles per hour, and they only had a range of about 40 miles. So it really didn't pick up that much momentum. Fast forward to the 90s, and all of a sudden there's more focus on the environment. There's the 1990 Clean Air Act, the 1992 Energy Policy Act, and that's when we got GM's EV1 which was a much better vehicle, but it had really high production costs. So finally, 1997, the Toyota Prius was the world's first mass-produced hybrid electric vehicle. And I said 1997, it wasn't really released worldwide until the year 2000. And then 2006 is when Tesla Motors was first introduced. They started producing luxury sports cars that could go 200 miles on a single charge. And one comment I've got on that is that I feel like Tesla made a really smart move in making them luxury cars. I remember a couple decades ago, electric cars were seen as kind of lame. I don't know the best way to put this. It was almost like if you drove one, you were kind of nerdy. And yet, Tesla totally revolutionized that because they made them such awesome vehicles that had all these other cool features in addition to being really fast, really incredible vehicles. So anyways, from there, then we got the Chevy Volt, Nissan Leaf, 
And the big obstacle or problem at that point was that there just weren't that many places to charge your vehicle. Over the past several years, charging stations have become more and more common. There's been a lot of effort, you know, on the part of companies providing them in the parking lots for their own employees, on the part of the government trying to fund this new type of infrastructure. And now at this point, you know, if you look at last year, 2020, 3.2% of all cars sold globally were electric. And like I mentioned, we have much better batteries than we had in the past. They can hold a charge much better and these cars can go many more miles on a single charge. And it's also become enough of a status symbol to have an electric vehicle and show that you care about the environment and get the prestige of having something nice like a Tesla that it seems to be picking up more and more momentum. Yeah, I like the point that you made about it used to be that if you had an electric vehicle, it came off as kind of like nerdy, right? Or maybe even like pretentious or something like, but now... Owning an electric vehicle doesn't even necessarily denote environmentalism. It used to be that that would be the only reason you were driving it because you were sacrificing so many other things. But now, yeah, you can drive a nice vehicle that's electric. And if you wanted to, if you wanted to say, I hate the environment, but I drive this thing because it's cool. Most people would be like, yeah, it is pretty cool. (laughs) But there is no doubt that electric vehicles is an emerging market that's still in its infancy and that it has up to this point been slow in growth. But recently, it feels like electric vehicles are hitting a tipping point because of the reasons that you mentioned. And I think that was really important to go over that. And so I'm glad that you did that research. You know, I read somewhere that that right now there are around 10 million electric vehicles on the road, but that future projections for growth are pretty substantial. And when it comes to future projections of where we're going to be at with electrical vehicles. There are a lot of ranges here, so it can be kind of difficult to give an exact number, obviously, but it's projected that we'll hit somewhere between 115 and 150 million electric vehicles by 2030. So that's somewhere around a 13 to 15 times increase over what we have right now. And by 2050, the ranges are even wider, but some of the common numbers that I saw were around 900 million EVs. So we have somewhere around 90 times as many electric vehicles by 2050 as we have now. And the more optimistic numbers were saying even more than that, somewhere around like two, two and a half billion electric vehicles, which I think is highly optimistic, but I'll still throw the ranges in there because that was, uh, that was some numbers that I saw. But to put it in perspective, and this is the part where it might be a little bit of a downer on the electric vehicle parade as far as the differences that it's going to make. There are currently 1.5 or around 1.5 billion vehicles globally. So when you take into consideration the 10 million electric vehicles that are on the roads, that's just 0.66% of all vehicles that are electric vehicles. And by the way, for the remainder of this episode, I'm probably just going to call electric vehicles EVs. It's going to be a little simpler, and I'll probably call internal combustion engines just combustion engines. So I may not be perfectly correct, but it's going to be easier for me to get through this episode that way. So if 0.66% right now are EVs, and then in the future, in 2030, it's supposed to get to between 115 and 150 million EVs. And the goal, as stated by the IEA, is 230 million. So they've got a goal almost double of what the projected numbers are. But even if we go based off of their goal and said we hit that by 2030, we're supposed to have somewhere around maybe just less than 2 billion cars total in 2030. So if we hit 230 million EVs, That's about 11.5% of all vehicles eight years from now being electric vehicles. 
So there you were throwing around different years and different numbers, but if I can summarize or repeat back what I'm hearing, it's that EVs make up less than a percent of all the vehicles on the road globally right now, and that by somewhere between 2030 and 2035, the really optimistic goals are that we will be at 11.5%. And if I can just call out what's most scary to me about that is that we're going to go from around 1.5 billion vehicles driving around roads on the planet to perhaps 2 billion in less than a decade. And if you're telling me that even optimistically, only 11.5% of those will be electric, that just tells me our emissions, our oil consumption, all of that is only going up, up, up. Yeah, exactly. And we'll talk about the environmental benefits of EVs over combustion engines here in a little bit. But what you're saying is true that even if an electric vehicle, which it's not, but even if it was 100% more efficient than a combustion engine, the fact is that we're growing in the number of combustion engine vehicles that are on the road, even with the additional electric vehicles being added in. So just for math's sake, if we've got 1.5 billion vehicles on the road now, and in nine years we'll have 2 billion vehicles, we can subtract away the 230 million electric vehicles that we might have if we were to reach the goal by that year, that means we would have a total of 1.77 billion combustion engine vehicles on the road, where right now we have 1.5. So it's still a growth in the amount of gas, gasoline, and oil being consumed in those vehicles, plus the amount of emissions that are coming from the electric vehicles as well. So in a time when we're talking about needing to lower our emissions, well, yes, Our emissions will be lower than they would have been if we hadn't invented the electric vehicle. They're going to be net higher than they are now. And that same math actually pans out if you go all the way out to 2050. Because by 2050, we're supposed to have something like 3 billion cars. And if 900 million of those are EVs, then you've got 2.1 billion that are combustion engines. And so we're still talking about, at that point, that's like a 33% increase in combustion engine vehicles on the road. And if I remember right, you know, we talked about the IPCC report and all the warnings around what will happen if emissions continue at our current rate, we're headed toward two degrees Celsius. And that's when the calamities and the catastrophes are really predicted to happen. And in order for us to even have any chance, the global goal is that we will reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 50% by 2030. At the time of recording this, we're almost already in 2022. And then to reach net zero by 2050, and yet at least when it comes to transportation and vehicles, not only are our projections going to put us way short of that, but even our optimistic goals aren't going to get us to where apparently we need to get. Yeah, that's right. Um, There's not even a net decrease at all in emissions from vehicles expected in the next 30 years and especially not in the next eight, you know, by 2030. Now, if we were to go with the really optimistic scenarios that I read about for 2050, you know, they were saying that the ratio of EVs to combustion engines would be something like 80-20. So 80% of all vehicles on the road would be electric vehicles, and 20% would be combustion engines. So again, like we had mentioned earlier, there's supposed to be around 3 billion vehicles by 2050. So if 80% of those were EVs, we'd be at around 2.4 billion EVs and around 600 million combustion engine vehicles, which would be a reduction in combustion engine vehicles. 
I don't know how the math would necessarily work out with total emissions when you combine the EVs and combustion engines, especially when considering that there's a net total of two times as many vehicles on the road as we have now in just 30 years. But that is no doubt a much better situation than only having the other estimated numbers, which I saw, were, which were 900 million EVs and 2.1 billion combustion engines. So those are vastly different projections. Um, and some of what's going to make the difference in whether or not we get there is the policies and the regulations that happen between now and then. So right now, there are certain policies and regulations in place that have helped sort of get EVs to where they are. Because as you had mentioned, it is growing rather quickly. So right now, there are primarily two different ways that that's happening. Um, the first is by making the purchase of EVs more economic and convenient through subsidies and tax write-offs or rebates, increasing the charging infrastructure like you talked about, and increasing the quality and longevity of batteries and the EVs themselves, which makes them more attractive. You know, in the past, you had mentioned that the production process and, and therefore the cost of electric vehicles is really high. And it still is, but it's coming down. And so up to now, they've used these subsidies, these tax write-offs to make it more attractive. The second way that they're doing this is by making the purchase of combustion engine vehicles less attractive, less tenable for some people. So they've done that by tightening fuel economy and tailpipe CO2 requirements through emissions testing. That's making regular vehicles more expensive to manufacture and to maintain. And it also just makes more of them unable to pass those tests. You know, they're needing to add things like catalytic converters to those, which is raising the cost. And so this is also helping to take older vehicles off of the road as well, as those vehicles are less and less able to pass emissions testing. And some places have taken things even further. And this is quoting from an article um, from the IEA, which says, putting in place preferential prohibited circulation or access schemes such as low and zero emission zones or differentiated circulation fees. Such measures have had a major impact on EV sales in Oslo and a number of cities in China. So some places are taking it way further and basically saying, this is a zero emission zone, which is interesting. But the IEA admits that more intense efforts are going to have to be made and put in place in regards to incentivizing EVs and de-incentivizing combustion engine vehicles if we're going to reach the goal of hitting 230 million EVs on the road by 2030. They said, near-term efforts must focus on continuing to make EVs competitive and gradually phasing out purchase subsidies as sales expand. This can be done via differentiated taxation of vehicles and fuels based on their environmental performance and by reinforcing regulatory measures that will enable the clean vehicle industry to thrive. So it sounds like the idea of taxing regular car owners more for the damage their vehicles do to the environment and increasing regulations. So it sounds like they're going to make it harder and harder to become an owner of a combustion vehicle and make it more expensive, which as a side note, kind of begs the question of how this is going to affect working class or poor people as they're taking away subsidies and things from incentivizing the purchase of electric vehicles. And they're making it harder to own used vehicles that are already in existence. It seems like the only way moving forward is to buy a new vehicle, which I know is not in everybody's financial ability. Yeah, that's a big challenge for people that can't afford to purchase a new vehicle. If you're just trying to get by and survive and keep your gas vehicle running as long as possible so that you don't have to buy a new one, and yet the taxes, the emission tests, the policies put in place that make it more and more expensive for you to own that vehicle, 
kind of pushes you toward eventually having to buy a new vehicle and you're incentivized to buy an electric vehicle. One of the hopeful things there is that just like all technologies, as it gets more advanced and it's produced at larger scale and it's distributed more broadly, the cost goes down. And so I'm really hopeful that at least comparatively, electric vehicles, the price of EVs will decrease dramatically. Yeah, that's a great call out because it does feel like we're barely scratching the surface of technology when it comes to electric vehicles. And I'm also very sort of bullish on the idea that electric vehicles are going to go through many technological advancements in the coming years or decade that will facilitate not only, like you said, a cheaper, more economic cost, but will also make them much more usable, much more convenient, much more attractive. And I think the main way in which that's going to happen is through batteries. And you sent me an article recently that was in regards to sort of a new breakthrough maybe on batteries. And I I see these articles floating around um, and different things around batteries and what's happening with batteries. But this one kind of seemed to be the one that's had the most fanfare recently and that may show some real promise. Yeah, that article was actually from a few months ago, but it was a Forbes article and the title of it is Developer of Aluminum Ion Battery Claims It Charges 60 Times Faster Than Lithium Ion Offering EV Range Breakthrough. And I don't know how close they are to being able to actually produce and distribute this kind of technology, but it does make me really excited. Like what an awesome thing if the range of electric vehicle batteries can increase and the charging time can decrease And especially if that happens as dramatically as this article seems to promise it will. Yeah, to imagine those types of increases, you know, 60 times faster charging. I think it said it was three times as energy dense, something like that. That would be an incredible breakthrough for these batteries. And not only is it the batteries become more efficient, but it's using aluminum instead of lithium, which is massive for the environment and for the well-being of the miners and, and all of that. Lithium and cobalt are rare resources. You know, we've talked in the past about how it was projected that there was only enough lithium to replace every vehicle that's currently on the road once. I don't know how accurate that is now, but aluminum is a much more available resource. It's a much cheaper resource. Mining it would be much less harmful to the environment, and it would be much more scalable, much cheaper. On top of that, it's also safer. They were saying that these batteries don't have the same heat issues, the the risk of fire and overheating. They also don't have the transportation issues. Because lithium is potentially flammable, you can't fly it in large amounts on planes and things like that, which make it much harder, much more expensive to ship. So logistically, it would just make much more sense. It would be much better. Now, there are hurdles for them to overcome to actually bring these to fruition and and get them in vehicles. They're saying that it would be at least until probably 2024 or 2025 by the time they hit market in mass. But the point is, that they are coming up rapidly with new technologies. And I personally believe that they're going to come up with technologies that make electric vehicles more practical and that will help them scale. The question though, and one that we've basically already answered with the math we did earlier is, will the advent of electrical vehicles help stave off climate change by reducing emissions enough? Yes, we've established that there's a lot of hope and potential for the EV market. 
I'm really excited about what's to come. And yet, it's bittersweet because when it comes to the larger issue of trying to reduce emissions, we've also established that even under optimistic forecasts, our emissions will keep going up and up and up. And transportation makes up 29% of all emissions in the U.S. And between 60 and 80% of transportation comes from private vehicles. That depends on whether you're counting like medium and heavy-duty trucks. But at least in the U.S., we're talking about being able to make an impact on 60 to 80% of 29% of our emissions. And yet those emissions, even if we can produce a lot of electric vehicles, are only going to keep going up. So spoiler alert when it comes to the question we're trying to answer, can technology save us in the case of electric vehicles? The answer is no. So basically you're saying even if every passenger car on the road was an electric vehicle, and even if electric vehicles were 100% efficient or had net zero emissions, which they're nowhere near that, but if they had net zero emissions, we'd still only be talking about something like a quarter of emissions that we're helping to avoid. Yeah, that's exactly right. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't make the effort. Obviously, any improvement is worth pursuing. And so one question that we haven't yet answered is, are electric vehicles actually better for the environment than gas-powered vehicles? There's some really interesting research. It was done by a group from the University of Toronto and highlighted in a Wall Street Journal article. But what they did is they took a Tesla Model 3 and they compared it to a RAV4. And they said, let's just see from start to finish, when it comes to emissions, which one is actually better. So building electric vehicles like the Tesla Model 3 still generates a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. You have to smelt the aluminum and manufacture the components and assemble the vehicle. So it turns out that building the Tesla actually generates 65% more emissions than building the RAV4. And that's because of the metals needed for the lithium-ion battery. Again, hopefully that'll change in the future. And then when it comes to driving a Tesla, obviously you refuel your Tesla, you recharge it with electricity. So you think, how is that electricity produced? So anyways, what that adds up to is for every mile driven, generating the electricity for the Tesla emits 34% of the emissions that it takes to make and burn the gasoline for the RAV4. By the time you hit 20,600 miles, that's the break-even point between the Tesla Model 3 and the RAV4. From there, the Tesla is much more efficient. By 100,000 miles, total emissions for the RAV4 are 77% more than the Model 3. And by 200,000 miles, you're looking at 78 tons of greenhouse gases for the RAV4 versus 36 tons for the Model 3. So are electric vehicles better for the environment? Absolutely, long-term. But there are some trade-offs in there, and it's clear that EVs still produce a lot of emissions. Yeah, those numbers give a good perspective, and I love having specific examples of different models, which is awesome. The numbers that I have here are around averages, so I think it's interesting to look at those as well. So I had that on average, the production process for EVs is somewhere around 30 to 40% more than a regular vehicle. And then as far as actually driving the vehicles and refueling them, I have that an average passenger car emits something like 411 grams of CO2 per mile. 
where an EV emits around 200, so about half on average. But it's estimated that if the grid were using renewable energy, it would be as low as 50. So that would be an eighth the emissions of a, of a regular passenger car. So obviously there's two things at play here, making the grid more renewable, making electric vehicles more efficient, making their batteries more efficient. But in the end, you've pointed out that by the end of its life, the electric vehicle emitted way less greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And I recognize that we're only talking about emissions here. When you talk about whether something is good or bad for the environment, I mean, how long do most vehicles last? In just a couple of decades, to think that most all of those 1.5 billion vehicles on the road today are going to be just waste. And if that's going to increase, like you said, to 3 billion vehicles on the road by 2050, we're using a lot of resources, we're creating a lot of waste. There's a lot of debate around just how bad for the environment batteries are, and especially the production of batteries. But at least when it comes to emissions over the life of a vehicle, it's good to know that EVs really are much better for the environment. You know, in the end, if we were really going to talk about what could save us, it's not the advancement of EVs. As we can see, we're still putting more cars on the road and even more cars that are using gasoline. The real answer, the real solution would be to stop driving so many cars so far, right? It would be to reduce the number of vehicles overall on the road, which is degrowth. The same is true of any of our CAN technology Save Us episodes. You know, is the solution to make the grid more renewable or is the solution to use less energy on the grid? And degrowth is a whole other conversation to be had. And I think we'll do an episode on that and what that entails. But I do want to point out now that for anyone considering real solutions and anyone that is still hung up on technology allowing us to continue to grow infinitely. We know very well by this point in the podcast that there are limits to growth and that the only solution to the problem is to reverse our growth. And the best way to do that would be voluntarily. I think the the way to limit as much suffering through collapse as possible would be for an intentional period of degrowth. Knowing our political structure, our economic structure, our financial systems, that's likely not going to happen. And so that's why these conversations around technology are even happening. The technology is coming from a need by our economic systems for continual growth. So it's a bit of a paradox and a bit of a catch-22. But I like to point out and make sure that at least from our standpoint, as collapse where people that are, our minds are focused around what the real solution is, which is finding ways to stop increasing the problem by growing and instead decreasing our complexity and decreasing our growth. I think you're right. It kind of makes me think of somebody who's perhaps really unhealthy and they need to lose weight. And they're like, the solution is I'm going to switch from drinking regular soda to diet soda. And it's like, hey, sure, that can benefit you, but that's not going to solve the problem. Yeah, the the net effect could actually be worse. If you drink more diet soda, you're still going to end up gaining weight. You're not going to even flatten out or lose it necessarily. Yeah. So here we are so excited about this diet soda, these electric vehicles, and they are a good thing. And if, you know, I could snap my fingers right now and make it so every gas vehicle was suddenly an electric vehicle, I would in a heartbeat. That'd be fantastic. I would also love to account for all the airplanes, the trains, the rockets, the tractors, and other agricultural equipment, cargo ships, 
recreational boats. I mean, this topic doesn't even touch all of that. But I think the takeaway here, at least for me, is that electric vehicles are awesome. They can make an impact, but that impact will only be a fraction of what needs to take place if we're really going to course correct. You know, it's been a while since we asked, so I think we'll finish this one off by asking for reviews. If you're enjoying the podcast, please feel free to to review wherever you listen. It's especially helpful if it's a written review, not just leaving the number of stars, but also writing out what you like about the podcast. And if there's something you don't like about it, you can tell your cat or send it to us directly. But thank you so much for listening, and we will speak again in a week. Thank you.